Hey Northerners, this is just a listener's note for this particular case that's going to be coming up here. Um, We're going to be talking about a serial killer who um, murdered upwards of 50 women um, and dismembered their bodies. So I just need to throw that out there um, in case this is something you can't handle or listen to. Uh, This is my warning to you. Hey Northerners, a listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Northern Blood podcast. Listener discretion is advised. is going to be a pretty in-depth case. Um, We're going to be covering Robert Willie Picton's serial killer lifestyle and all of his very, very unfortunate um, victims and kind of his life story and how it goes. So without further ado, here is episode 11, Robert Willie Picton. So Robert grew up in a place called Port Coquitlam, which is in British Columbia. Um, It is a city that is kind of just outside. It's about an hour from Vancouver. And so a lot of people, especially back when they lived on their farm, um, a lot of people would live out there and travel into Vancouver because it was kind of an easier commute and it's less expensive in Port Coquitlam. And so... Robert's entire family grew up on this farm and they were pig farmers. And from what I understand, um, his mom ran the ship. Now, I believe there were three children. There was Robert, there was Linda, and there was Dave. Um, Now, Robert was the youngest. And there's not a lot said about Robert's dad, um, just that he... I believe drank a lot and just wasn't very, very involved. He worked hard on the farm and the kids were all expected to work on the farm and and hold their weight and things like that. But from what I understand, it looks like Louise, their mother, was a very hands-on mother and uh, basically ran the pig farm as well as the family. And so she did the best she could. And from what I understand, she was also very eccentric and very tough. Um, She was a workaholic and they were in the meat business um, with pigs. So she actually supervised the kids, expected them to put in long hours, slopping the pigs, looking after other animals, even on school days. So before school, after school. And at one point, um, Willie had actually said that he wanted to, when he wanted to hide from somebody, he would actually crawl into a gutted carcass of a large hog, which is a little bit disturbing in itself. So um, Willie, as he liked to be called, Robert, um, Willie dropped out of school, I believe when he was in grade nine, which meant he was about 14. He never graduated high school. Um, He got picked on a lot in school from a lot of the research that I've done. Um, He got picked on a lot for various reasons. Um, Number one, he was not very smart. 
he definitely did not kind of fit into the group of kids that he would have gone to school with. His IQ was lower. Um, and also, I, I think from what I understand, it was his own choice, but he didn't shower very frequently. So he had this odor and aroma about him, which obviously is going to make kids make fun of you at school. So, um, but yeah, so they basically just did their work on the farm and went to school until such a time where Robert uh, dropped out and decided he was going to work full-time on the farm as his family aged and things like that. His sister Linda was quite a few years older and she actually married and left the farm. Now, there are a lot of stories about this family and I think that if you were to live in Port Coquitlam, I'm sure you would have heard them. Um, and if I am correct... I believe Robert Willie Picton is Canada's most notorious serial killer, which is quite the name badge to hold. Um, but there are a lot of stories, like I said. And so um, his brother Dave was, I think, closer to, to Robert in age. And so not that they necessarily hung out a lot as kids, but Dave, you know, did what he could with Willie and he actually fell into a kind of a bad crowd. So if you are familiar with something called the Hells Angels, it is a biker gang here. Um, I believe it's Canada-wide, but I mean, I could be completely incorrect. Um, but Dave kind of got swindled into that group and was hanging out with some, you know, rough people and um, was into drugs and alcohol and all of that stuff. And so in the midst of all of that, they, now they did live on an acreage in Port Coquitlam, but at that point, the other neighboring acreages were not that far. So they were like neighbors. Um, and so at one point, um, Willie had actually told of his grief at the discovery that his parents had actually slaughtered a pet calf that he had raised when he was a boy. And he never really got over it and repeated the story to people he got close to over the years. So like I said, he spent years in special ed classes and finally quit. So he wasn't just in a regular school. He was in a special education class because his IQ was quite low and because the girls and boys shunned him because of that and because of his personal hygiene, um, he just dropped out. And so even after he grew up, he still stank of manure and dead animals and dirt and his clothes were never clean. He had a fear of showers, which he then claimed was because his mother always insisted he take baths. And then there's a story of when his younger brother, Dave, was learning to drive. Um, this is actually a story that reveals so much more about Louise, their mother, than Dave. But on the evening of October 16th, 1967, when Dave was about 16, he had recently gotten his driver's license and he took his father's 1960 red truck, which is going to become the most infamous piece of evidence. Um, he took it from the farm and he headed east along Dominion Ave towards Burns Road. It was about 7.40 p.m. and just ahead of him on the right side was one of the neighborhood kids, a 14-year-old boy named Tim Barrett, and he was walking down the road. And how exactly this happened, no one really knows. But Dave slammed right into Tim. He knew right away that Tim, who was lying crumpled on the road, was badly hurt. He raced home in a panic to tell his mother what had happened. Louise picked him, stopped what she was doing, hurried over to the place where the injured boy was laying, 
and we don't know if Dave actually drove to go get her or ran on foot. But after looking Tim over, she leaned over, rolled and shoved to the edge of the deep slough that kind of ran alongside the road. She pushed him in and then she turned and she went home. She literally left a boy who she obviously assumed was dead, but he could very much have been alive. Dave was frightened. He drove the truck to a mechanic in Port Coquitlam who handled the Picton's family vehicles and asked the man to bang out a dent in the front of the hood and replace a broken turn signal. He even wanted him to repaint the area with the same red house paint that the Picton's had used for the truck before. The mechanic repaired the dent and turned the signal light, but refused to do the painting. In the meantime, the boy's parents, Philip and Lois Barrett, were frantic. Philip Barrett phoned the neighbors again and again and again to see if they could find where Tim was. It was just before 1 a.m. and he went to the local police station to report his son missing. The next morning, one of the neighbors, a woman whose son had seen Tim the night before, went out to help Barrett search the road area. Barrett spotted his son's shoe at the side of the road. Looking around the spot, he and a neighbor reached the slough that runs about 10 feet from the road and peering down into the water, they spotted Tim's body. The police arrived right away and pulled the body out of the murky water. An autopsy showed that the cause of death was drowning, not injuries that he had suffered when the truck hit him. So exactly what I said, he was alive when Louise picked and threw him into the ditch. He had suffered a fractured skull with a subcranial hemorrhage and a fractured dislocated pelvis. But the pathologist who did the autopsy stated that these injuries would not have killed him. When he died, Timothy Barrett, who was born February 13, 1953, was in grade 8 at the local public school. He had lived with his parents around the corner from Dominion Ave in a house now owned by the Pictons' crony and watchdog Bill Malone. The Barretts buried their son on October 20, 1967, in Port Coquitlam. Three days later, a new Westminster coroner filed a report listing the cause of death as drowning, but noting the serious injuries caused by the vehicle that hit him. In March 1968, a coroner's jury listed that the evidence of several people, including neighbors, the mechanic who fixed the truck, and the police officer who invested the case, the verdict was accidental death. But at the same time, as the coroner informed the five-man jury, a criminal investigation was underway. And that investigation, of course, was into Dave's actions that night. He did not get off scot-free. He was sent to juvenile court, and more details are not really available. However, because his record is sealed because he was a minor, the coroner's inquest was not mandated to investigate all the little mysteries that arose on that night. Louise was never charged. Remember, this is her fault. But the true story quickly got out among neighbors, and many years later, in the 1990s, Willie told the story to one of his closest friends. While this event would have scarred Dave more than his brother, the chilling portrait of Louise as a mother remains. And what about the father? His name was Leonard, and he had, according to the family friends, had very little influence on his children. Court watcher and retired Port Coquitlam Welder, who had done work on the farm, actually told stories of Leonard's violent abuse to Willie. To balance this, there are also newspaper interviews with Linda, who talked, now that's her, their sister, who talked about her father with great affection. So it sounds like Linda was a daddy's girl, and it looked like Willie was the brunt of the abuse. Now, obviously, it's hard to believe that one parent could be so absent in raising children, but who was the influence in Willie Picton's life? 
So this story, obviously, if you know the story, is quite a convoluted story. So before I continue on with the Pictons, I need to kind of segue into something called the Downtown East Side in Vancouver. It is actually known as Canada's poorest postal code. It's actually a stretch of about 10 blocks, which is on East Hastings Street. And I've actually driven down this road and I'm not kidding you when I say it makes you lock your vehicle door. As sad as that is to say, but a lot of these people seem so, I don't know, like they can just do something at the drop of a hat and they're so desperate for money or drugs or whatever has gotten them to that awful spot in their life that it can be scary now these 10 blocks are littered with bloodstains crack vials dirty condoms often called the low track or skid row they hold canada's highest concentration of prostitution drug addiction homelessness and mental illness in the shadows of the mountains and under broad daylight addicts will poke needles into their arms searching for good veins dealers oversee them as they scratch the sidewalks looking for crumbs of drugs. Prostitutes will sell their bodies for $10, $15, $20, enough to feed a drug habit and then return to the streets for more. Now, the other thing about East East Hastings Street is that if you were to go one block over, there are men in suits and women in, you know, dress attire because they work in high-end office buildings and they're lawyers, but it's, it's, it's this weird stretch of road. It's like, like I said, a 10 block radius. And these people stay within that 10 block radius. The police will go and enforce and they'll go make sure that things are going, you know, on within that road and not into other streets. But it's just this strange thing. It's like these people will stay on East Hastings. They won't go to another street. But at the same time, like, don't walk down East Hastings. Like, it's really, you're taking your life into your own hands. And so on these corners, sexual predators proliferate. And this is where the story of Vancouver's missing women begins. Uh, Each day, prostitutes are beaten and raped and robbed, tied up, held down, doused, and burned. And some men slam car doors under their legs. One man tried to cram a ball down a prostitute's throat. Another took women to hotels and forced them to drink until they poisoned themselves. Prostitutes from these corners, it is said, liked to hang out at the Picton's pig farm or at a nearby place called Piggy's Palace, which was actually a barn turned into a bar where the Picton brothers threw parties and people ate roasted pig. Now, the things about Piggy's Palace is it was a Hells Angels hangout and it was basically, they claimed, the Picton brothers claimed that it was like a charity. So anything that was raised at Piggy's Palace went to a charity. Who knows what charity that is? But... It really was a place for people to get, you know, low cost drugs, low cost alcohol, if not free. Um, And if you are a prostitute, it was a way for you to get a hookup and make some money. And so unfortunately, it really comes across as the fact that these Picton brothers took advantage of these women. So even though um, Linda had grown up in Vancouver, like I said, she had married and she had left but obviously they were still in communication. So um, the parents actually bought the pig farm in 1963 for $18,000 Canadian, which is crazy to me because I believe from my research, I believe it was like a 14 acre farm, which is huge. Um, 
And so in 1979, Luis actually passed away and the children inherited the farm. About 15 years later, it was assessed for more than $7 million. So they kind of sold parts off as they went and some were sold to a developer, the city, a school district and all of that stuff. And so these three children became insanely wealthy. Dave managed the farm and Robert worked the slaughterhouse. And by this time, Linda had gone off to, you know, live with her husband far away. Um, and so neighbors actually described Willie as slow, but like not too slow that you couldn't have a conversation with him, but he actually never drank or smoked cigarettes or did drugs. So it's crazy that he became this person known to supply drugs and alcohol, even though he never, ever, ever drank or did drugs. And he actually self-professed that and said, you know, I'm a clean person, you know, I'm just a pig man. He always said that, I'm just a pig man. And so once they sold that, they became insanely wealthy, but it never really got to him. He stayed living on the property in this run down trailer, which was as filthy, if not more filthy than he, and he just minded his business. He never really caused ruckus with the neighbors. Um, but a lot of people would describe the farm as dredges of the earth and it was a hellhole, and you could tell people to just not go. But when you're dealing with people who have an addiction, they will do anything to score some drugs or some alcohol. And so they would party with Willie and he would supply drugs and alcohol. And when they reached a certain point and they ran out, they would go back to the farm and likely never be heard from again. But Willie convinced them to come so they could continue the party and keep it going there and go until, you know, four in the morning, five in the morning. And these women were so desperate for drugs and alcohol that they would go. So police say that because of the nature of prostitution life, it's hard to know whether a woman was really missing or gone or murdered because they're just so unaccounted for. And a lot of their family members know them as a certain name. Let's just say Jane Smith. And if, but the people who are with them in the downtown east side on East Hastings Street in the, in the Skid Row might not know them as Jane Smith. They might know them as Honeysuckle. I don't know. I just made that up, but you know what I mean? So these people, these family members would maybe come knowing that their, their family member was into drugs. They might go down to East Hastings and they might start looking for them and asking questions. But the people, the, the people who live on East Hastings might not know these people as that name. And so they just weren't connecting the dots. And so the first women on their list of disappeared was in 1983 and it would take them 19 years and 62 more women before police admitted that one person might have killed that many women. Now, again, there's a lot of articles and things that you can read about this case. And a lot of them are going to take down the VPD, the Vancouver Police Department, and basically it's hearsay, but basically say that they've done, they did a crappy job at taking care of the case and doing their research and moving quickly. And unfortunately, it is so easy for us to sit on this side in the future and judge them for what happened. 
again, this is Canada's most notorious serial killer. So you have to take that into consideration. The VPD had never dealt with anything, not to mention they're dealing with people who probably go missing for weeks at a time sometimes and then pop back up. And so their job was not an easy one. And so basically, um, finally the VPD had kind of said, okay, you know what? We have a serious problem here. It could be attributed to a serial killer. But again, these women were too transient. And if you looked hard enough, you might just find them in another city. And so in 1997, nearly five years before Picton's arrest, a woman had actually told police she had escaped from the pig farm. She said she went there for drugs and booze and he eventually they were in the trailer and I guess they had, you know, had sex and all of those things. And she was getting her stuff together. She was getting ready to leave and she just felt him watching her. And all of a sudden he grabbed her hand and he started caressing it. And so she immediately was disturbed and she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. But before she could even get away, he actually threw handcuffs on her. And she actually remembered that as he had her hands, that she had actually seen a knife on a counter. And so she slowly, now don't get me wrong, I don't know how she thought of this in this exact moment, but this literally saved her life. She slowly kind of backed up and fought him till she got to that corner and somehow with her free hand found the knife that was on the counter. Now, obviously she was going backwards and she couldn't, you know, see which way the knife was pointed. So she ended up actually stabbing her own hand before grabbing the knife and she actually ended up stabbing Willie. And then in the flurry, she ended up dropping the knife and he got it and he ended up stabbing her in the chest. Now, both of them are bleeding profusely and somehow she gets away and she makes a break for it. And if you kind of were to look on a map of where the pig farm was, it was on the corner of a road and she somehow made it to the road and she somehow was able to flag down a car, which the story goes that it was an elderly couple and they see this woman in the middle of the road covered in blood, covered in her blood, covered in Willie's blood, holding a knife, waving them down. Like, how scary is that? But they stopped. They let her in and they actually drove her to the hospital. And then in the midst of all of that, at the hospital, as they're treating her injuries and her wounds in another hospital room, and this gives me like the goosebumps to just think about it, Willie had actually made his way to the hospital, driven himself there with his injuries. And the hospital staff actually made the connection that these two incidents were connected. And so he was actually charged with confining and stabbing. Her name was Wendy Lynn Eistetter, but the charges were actually later dropped. And she actually described was described in media reports as a drug addicted prostitute and wasn't considered a credible witness. And this is why the charges were dropped. Now, again, hindsight is 2020. So if you were to truly think about had they arrested him and kept him and charged him and put him in jail, would any of these killings truly have happened? So the number of missing women actually spiked from 1998 to 2002, according to a report by the Canadian Association of Sexual Assault Centers. And they were concerned about how the stigma of prostitution allowed so many women to go missing without investigation. 
more than 30 women disappeared since police first investigated Picton as a suspect in 1997. Constable Dave Dixon of the VPD said people on the streets may have suspected the farm, but there were no reports to police. And these people on the streets actually started looking out for themselves, you know, knowing, okay, like, don't get into a random car and don't go to the farm and all of these things. Like, they really banded together because they truly believed that someone bad was out there and was slowly picking off the people that they cared about. So no one was coming forward. They were all scared. But they were still going out there because they still needed to make money because they still needed to get their drugs. And so in 1999, Inspector Kim Rosmo said that he believed a serial killer was at work, but the police department dismissed the theory. We're in no way saying there's a serial murderer out there, they said. But there was. And it wasn't until the women's relatives and the Eastside organization started holding rallies and demanded the police investigate that then they finally created a task force and they eventually decided to post a reward. So February 5th, 2002, after a tip that Picton had actually had unregistered guns on his farm, that was the ticket that they needed. They needed some kind of way to get into the Picton farm to then investigate on other things. So what they saw can't truly, truly be reported because of a publication ban, but what they saw was enough to get another warrant, this time to search for the missing women. He was actually arrested on February 22nd of 2002. So for nearly two years afterwards, investigators searched the pig farm. They say that this is the biggest crime scene in Canadian history, if not in North American history. So there were multiple buildings on this land, on the 14 acre farm. There were trailers, there were buildings, there was a slaughterhouse, there was a ton of piles of dirt. So they were stripping these buildings and searching the dirt for body parts. Forensic experts were actually flown in to determine what they found was human from a pig, because again, it was a pig farm. So when the search ended, police say they had collected thousands of samples of human DNA. So Corporal Kate Galford, Royal Canadian Mountain Police spokesperson for the Joint Missing Women Task Force, said that they were still processing thousands of exhibits from the farm for years after. So they found copious amounts of evidence. Now, there were a couple of the original women whose DNA they were able to find kind of first in the midst of all of this. Um, one of the things that they did find was actually an inhaler for a woman who was missing from the downtown east side named Mona Wilson. Um, she was asthmatic and they found that among DNA and other, other parts of the property. Now, one of the key components of this investigation that was what kind of set Picton in stone was a witness who was actually a former friend of uh, Willie. Um, her name was Lynn Ellingson and she had kind of hung out with Willie for years. Um, she was actually the first witness to testify that she'd seen Picton with a dead body. Now, before I go into the details of that, basically she had been living a really, really rough life and she connected with Willie through that. And Willie basically, again, he, it's crazy that, that this guy was such a kind-hearted human in the sense that he always wanted to take care of people and so 
you know, bad things never happened to Lynn with Willie. He just wanted to be kind to her and give her a roof over her head and supply her with drugs. And so he tried to do what was best for her, I guess, in his own eyes. And so he basically said, listen, you can live for free on my property, but you have to come sometimes come with me when I go down to the low track or skid row and pick up a girl because, you know, they will feel more comfortable coming back to the farm if they see you. And so she said, hey, you know what? That's not a bad thing. Um, You know, she knows she'll get drugs from it. And so it was kind of an easy sell for her. And again, women who would see a woman in the vehicle would say like, hey, are you going back to the farm as well? And they would instantly feel more comfortable because there's a woman and it wasn't just Willie. And so basically there was a, you know, evening where they picked up a girl on the low track. They brought her back to the farm. And while they were at the farm, um, Lynn had basically gotten her drugs and she went to her place on the farm. And I believe it was like a separate building or a different bedroom. And she basically said like, you know, she was just getting high and she heard an awful sound, almost like, like a scream. And so she thought, you know what, like, I'm just high. Like I should probably just not even think about it. It was nothing, but she couldn't get it out of her brain. And so she went to Willie's trailer and she couldn't find him and she couldn't find him. And so she just started wandering frantically on the farm in the middle of the night looking for whatever scream she had heard. And she made her way to the barn, which is actually known as the slaughterhouse. And so she kind of saw a bright light coming from the barn door where Picton slaughtered the pigs. And so she at first thought what she saw was a pig because if you know anything about pig slaughtering, you hang a pig off of a hook and you got it that way but even though she was high when she looked in the door she instantly recognized it was not a pig it was a body of a woman that was hanging from the hook and instantly Willie noticed her and he pulled her inside the door walked her over the table and said if she said anything that Lynn would be on the table beside this woman And she instantly recognized that this was a woman they'd picked up earlier that night. And Lynn instantly remembers her red toes and this woman's black hair. She didn't see this woman's face. She didn't remember what she looked like, but all she could remember were her red painted toes and her black hair. And in the courtroom, she was actually asked, was Picton doing anything to the woman? And Lynn said, there were knives with blood on them and he was full of blood himself. And later that night, Lynn said that Picton put her in a cab and sent her off to get drugs. And she said that she got back together with her boyfriend. She no longer needed a place to stay with Picton. And that was her ticket out of there. That was the way that she could be safe and not become one of these women. Now, he was arrested, like I said, February 22nd, 2002, and he was actually charged with the deaths of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson. Those are the two first women that they got DNA from that they were able to charge him with. Now, April 2nd, 2002, three more charges were added. Jacqueline McDonald, Diane Rock, and Heather Bottomley. And then a sixth woman was for the murder of Andrea Jonesbury, um, and then a seventh, which was Brenda Wolf. Now, September 20th, 2002. Now, keep in mind, he's incarcerated now. Four more charges were added for the slayings of Georgina Pappen, Patricia Johnson, Helen Hellmark, and Jennifer Firminger. 
and then four more charges for the murders of Heather Chincock, Tanya Holick, Sherry Irving, and Inga Hall. And then that brought the total to about 15, which made him the largest of any serial killer in Canadian history. Then May 26, 2005, now keep in mind this is three years after, 12 more charges were laid against him for the killings of Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven, Deborah Lynn Jones, Marnie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Carrie Klosky, Sarah DeVries, Cynthia Felix, Anthony, Angela Jardin, Wendy Crawford, Diana Melnick, and Jane Doe, which was an unidentified woman, bringing the total to 27. Now, the cost of the investigation continued through for a couple years. It's estimated to have been about $70 million by the end of 2003. Now, currently the property is actually fenced off and all of the buildings have been demolished. This is the documentation that I could find. Now, I don't know what it looks like in 2020. Um, they actually invited all of the victims' families to come and watch these buildings fall. They had demolished the buildings completely and it had been very, very difficult to get forensic analysis done because the bodies of the victims may have been left to decompose or allowed to be eaten by the insects and pigs on the farm. During the early days uh, of the investigation, forensic anthropologists brought in heavy equipment, including two 50-foot flat conveyor belts and soil sifters to find traces of remains. Now, again, remind, remind yourself that this is a pig farm. So if they find something, they have to then investigate and figure out if it is an animal bone, a human bone. So March 10th, 2004, it was revealed that human flesh may have been ground up and mixed with pork from the farm. Take that in. This pork was never distributed commercially, but it was handed out to friends and visitors of the farm. Another claim made is that he actually fed the bodies directly to his pigs, because if you know anything about pigs, they will literally eat anything you put in front of them. Now, due to the size of this crime scene and all of the evidence and the lack thereof, because of however he was able to dispose it, a lot of the victims that are said to have been part of his completion list, if you want to call it that, um, would actually never receive justice because there was just not enough evidence to charge him with another 20 counts. However, without stating that he's actually done them and, and having charges, the police do believe that he is responsible. Now, at one point, the VPD actually had a review of the investigation and they had actually conducted an exhaustive management review of the missing women investigation and they needed to make the review available to the public because there were uproars and a little bit later there was actually an apology and they had said i wish from the bottom of my heart that we would have caught him sooner i wish that the several agencies involved that we could have done better in so many ways I wish that all the mistakes that were made we could undo, and I wish that more lives could have been saved. So on behalf and behalf of the VPD and all the women and men that worked on this investigation, I would say to the families how sorry we all are for your losses because we did not catch this monster sooner. Now, it wasn't truly until they had an undercover officer in the jail cell with Robert Pil Willie Picton where he kind of underhandedly admitted what he did. So I have a transcript here and basically this guy is probing Willie, asking him what he is in jail for. 
And eventually he just says, I was just driving. They just pulled me off the road. And this undercover police officer says, what? They just pulled you off the road? I don't think they could throw you in jail for driving on the road. And he said, yeah, they got attempted murder. I got murder charges against me, two murder charges. And this police officer says, well, you're a working kind of guy. How would you have caught, how would you have murdered people? And he said, I don't know. I don't even know what's going on. And he says, they're going to charge me with murder on two counts. And this guy says, yeah, that's pretty heavy. And Robert says, you know what? Sometimes innocent people go to jail too. And this police officer says, yeah, tell me about it. He says, they have to prove it first. And Robert says, what's that? And the guy says, we have to prove, they have to prove it first. So later on in the conversation, Picton basically says, you know, they could say anything. And this guy says, it may look pretty, but still, they have to prove it. And I'll tell you what, they got nothing. They got nothing on you. Picton says, this one person I had about two and a half months ago. The police officer says, yeah? Picton says, about a month and a half ago, this girl, she lives. She has no place to stay, so she stays inside a van. She brought all of her ID over to my place and everything else and all her clothes. The only problem now is I'm charged with the murder of her, and I got her ID at my place. And this police officer says, hey. And Picton says, and then there's this broad here, and I think she stays in the van. I don't have a clue. So then a little bit later, the conversation goes on for quite some time. But basically, he ends up, the police officer is just kind of, you know, making small talk and things like that. And Picton just stops what he's doing and he kind of mumbles to himself. And they can't really make it out. And he says, they're dead. They're dead pick, the pick. There's hardly any mess, no blood, hard to detect. Takes the cops a while to figure out what happened to the guy. And Picton says, I buried myself now. And the guy says, hey? Picton says, I buried myself. The police officer says, how? Picton says, got me. They got me on this one. And the guy says, no, no, they didn't. And he's like, what have they got? Picton says, there's old carcasses. And the guy says, so what have you got? You know what I'm saying? DNA? Uh-oh. Picton says, yeah. The guy says, come on, buddy. That's nothing. They can't finalize if you have just have a missing person. It's pretty hard to collect DNA on a missing person. Picton says they've got DNA. Guy says, oh, well, I mean, the best way to take care of a body is to take it to the ocean. And Picton says, oh, really? The guy says, oh, you know what the ocean does to things? There ain't much left. Picton says, I did better than that. The guy says, who? Picton says, me. Guy says, no, really? Picton says, a rendering plant. Now, before I continue, a rendering plant is a place where you take any kind of you know, scraps of animals that you want disposed of, and they basically burn them until there's nothing left. And so now Picton is saying a rendering plant, and the police officer says, hey? Picton says, a rendering plant? Well, I guess that's got to be pretty good, hey? Picton says, mm-hmm. Guy says, there can't be much left. Picton says, no, I was kind of sloppy at the end, though. I was getting too sloppy. Police officer says, really? Picton says, they got me. I was getting too sloppy. And then at the very end of this conversation, he says, I was going to do one more and make it an even 50, but I got too sloppy. I wanted to make one more and make it the big 5-0. The police officer says, make the big 5-0. Wow, that's half a hundred. 
and Picton just laughed. Now, it was shortly after that that they kind of let the undercover police officer out of the cell. He had to go, quote-unquote, call his lawyer, and he left. And it was after that that they had official confirmation that he had, in fact, fed animals to the pigs, had taken scraps of the bodies to the rendering plant, and actually in the midst of all of their searches in the slaughterhouse, there were freezers with body parts in them, hands and feet, and it was just one of the most gruesome and disturbing crime scenes that has ever been discussed. Now, he was charged with life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. He was officially only charged with 15, and if you heard what I just read, he had 49 women. Only 15 of those have been charged. He is a monster. Now, again, whether that comes from a broken childhood, no one really knows, but Robert Picton took advantage of the people in the low track that required drugs and required money in order to feed their drug habit. And unfortunately, they were victims of the Picton serial killer. And he will be in jail until I believe he is around 70 now. Um, and he will be in jail until the 25 years. And one can only hope that he will never get paroled and he will never walk the streets of Port Coquitlam again. Thank you so much for listening. Every case I talk about is so important and deserves the attention. If you could kindly share this podcast with your friends, that would be amazing. If this is the first time you're listening to Northern Blood, thank you. I would love for you to go give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now stay safe.